Please pray with me. Father, we need You. I pray that You would send Your Spirit to fill our lives with Your life through the work of Your Son. Amen. John 11 is famous. Famous for something that's not actually true. You might have heard that Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. I'm about to burst your bubble. It's actually kind of interesting. It's clear that whoever originally started that rumor couldn't read Greek because Jesus wept is actually 16 letters and three words in Greek. If you wonder where that third word comes from, it literally says, the Jesus wept. And 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Only two words in Greek and 14 letters. That's the shortest verse of the Bible. It's actually funny to me, though, that the two shortest verses of the Bible are Jesus weeping and a command to us to rejoice. I don't know what you do with that, but you could make something out of it theologically. That's fascinating to me. Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John actually only gives us a handful of Jesus' miracles. He only tells us about seven of them, and there's a kind of plus one added. But the miracle that we're looking at is the seventh one. It's the capstone of Jesus' miracles. And John takes the miracles and doesn't call them miracles or works of power the way the other Gospels do. Instead, he calls the miracles signs. They're signposts. Each one of them points to a deeper truth. And this actually begins to explain his selection, why he only takes the seven that he takes. The plus one, by the way, is the resurrection of Jesus himself. Not called a sign in John, but the last big one. But this one that we're looking at, the raising of Lazarus, is number seven. The perfect one. You know, the seventh is the perfection. It's the completeness. It's a sign pointing to something. And it's intriguing to me that the plus one, the resurrection of Jesus, points to this exact same thing. It's like John's thrown up the neon lights and the exclamation points to say, I'm going to conclude this story of Jesus' signs with this great sign that points to something, and then the plus one, Jesus' resurrection, will point to the same thing. He's screaming at us, pay attention to this one. And so you say, well, what's this particular sign point to? And the message is clear. It's made clear by Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life that this final sign, the seventh perfect sign, and the resurrection of Jesus itself point to this truth that Jesus himself is victory over death, that Jesus himself is life to those who are dead, that Jesus himself is resurrection. This, of course, comes like you can't miss the point of this sign because Jesus actually says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He makes the thing that this sign points to quite clear. We can't miss it. But there's things that are embedded in that answer that we need to listen to. There's things that are actually truths for us that will help us understand what Jesus means. These verses, if I can continue to talk about a number plus one, These verses point out two truths, and there's sort of a third hint 
packed in them. The first truth that these verses point to is the fact that when Jesus talks about life, he is talking about something bigger than biological life. This is important. That when Jesus talks about life, he's talking about something bigger than our mere biology. What he's talking about includes our biology, but it's bigger than it. It's grander than it. It's richer than it. If that were not the case, how else could he say that if a person has this life, even if he dies, he still has it? The point is that this resurrection life that he's offering is bigger than us, bigger than our lives. And even if we die, it remains in our possession. The second truth that you can extract from this simple statement to Martha is that he's talking about a life that will only be finally realized in the resurrection. This is important for us. There's a tendency to want to realize everything in the here and now. It's actually the whole weight of our culture says you can get it all right now. But in this short little statement to Martha is embedded the reality that this life only gets fully realized in the resurrection. How else could he say that some have to go through death to get there? Even Lazarus died again. The point is about his statement about being resurrection is that this life only gets fully realized in the resurrection. There's something out in front of us, a hope that we have. But the third truth, the one hinted at, the plus one, actually needs to be held in tension with that. Because the hint behind this statement to Martha is that the life that he offers, even though it's only fully realized in the resurrection, the life that he offers is actually available now. Those two things seem like they're in tension with one another. It only gets realized in the resurrection, but it's available now. And my only statement to you all is keep that tension together. Because when the church goes all in on one or the other of those statements, we end up mistaking something. It's actually available now, and yet it only gets realized in the resurrection. Martha wanted to put it out to the resurrection. When she said about his, she was talking about her brother and what she say, she says, I know that he will rise on the last day. And you know what Jesus said very gently, pushing back at her? I am right now in the present. It's not just the last day, Martha. I am resurrection life right now. So three things. When he talks about life, he's talking about something bigger than biology. The second one, he's talking about something that's only fully realized in the resurrection. But the third one, intention with that. And yet it's actually on offer in the present. This life, the the offer of life in John is perhaps the dominant theme of John. If this were literature class, and y'all all had a little cheap paperback version of John, and I said, pull out your yellow highlighters, and we're going to highlight every time throughout John where Jesus offers life, you would walk away with a text dripping from that yellow highlighter. This is one of the most dominant themes of the Gospel of John. He opens the prologue with this. This beautiful statement about the Word being in the beginning and the Word with God and the Word is God. And what's the thing he says? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. He opens his book with this life is offered. I'm not going to touch every place where this life comes up in John. We'd be here tomorrow. But throughout the book, 
This offer of life is explicit or implicit lurking behind the passages. You have to be born again to enter the kingdom. What is being born again if not being given a new life? Later in that same passage in John 3, why was the only begotten Son sent into the world? That we might have everlasting life. The, the offer of life lies behind the passage we saw a couple of weeks ago. The woman at the well in Samaria. If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me, and I would give you what? Water of life. It's behind that. It's behind John 6, where he feeds the people in the wilderness. And John 6 is too beautiful, so I have to read at least a few of these verses. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, and what? Gives life to the world. Over and over in John 6, he points to this. He says later in the same thing, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has what? Eternal life. I am the bread of life. Later in the same passage, he says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. All throughout this discourse, Jesus is saying over and over, I alone have life, and I offer it to you. It's what lies behind John 7, when Jesus stands up in the midst of the Feast of Booze in the middle of Jerusalem and declares, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink, because out of his innermost being shall flow what? Rivers of living water. The offer of life is behind scene after scene after scene of John. John 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. I'll stop there, but my point to you is that throughout the Gospel of John, over and over and over and over, Jesus is saying, I have life. I come with life, and I'm offering that life to you. And then you say, so why is this particular miracle the one that John chooses as the capstone of the miracles, the perfection, the number seven? Because we see in this moment Jesus enacting what he's promised all along. I have the power over the grave. I can bring the dead back to life. Watch me do it. And this is why he said to Martha, didn't I tell you you would see the glory of God? You can almost hear the happiness and the cheer, the delight in his voice. Like, watch this, guys. I can show you, I can prove to you that I mean what I say when I offer life. It's not the only miracle Jesus does as a proof. I think about that one in Mark where that man is lowered through the roof, the cripple, and Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. And people say, blasphemy. How can he forgive sins? And he says, you want me to prove it? Get up and walk. There's times Jesus uses his miracles of proof that his words can be trusted. And this is one of those. My words of life can be trusted. My words of life can be trusted. You want to see how? Watch me raise the dead. There's a danger, though, in talking about this. The danger is very simply that Jesus offers life is, is Christianese. Right? We're like, okay, thanks, Stephen. You just spent 10 minutes telling me what I already know. Jesus offers life. It's Christianese. It's something that we're so comfortable with, words we know and recite, that we sort of, we think we get it. But the, the challenge that I want to actually sort of lay before you 
the challenge that I've been trying to lay before myself over this passage is do we actually understand what he's saying? Do we take it seriously? Do we just hear the words and say, yep, I know, and move on? Or do we actually come face to face with the fact that he's offering life to us? If you ask yourself the question, what is this life? You realize very quickly that it becomes very difficult to actually conceive of what he's talking about. We, we grasp after like one of the words or another of the words that he uses to describe it. He calls it abundant. And so we go, well, it's life that's better than this one. Or he says that it's everlasting, and you go like, well, it's life that goes on forever. And most of us, even if we grappled with those things, would stop and go, wait a minute, if it's just never-ending life like this, I don't want it. It better be something other, bigger, better than this. It better be something different. But I think when we begin to wrestle with that, we realize very quickly that it's actually hard to get our minds around this concept. He's offering something over and over, and we need to stop and listen. That's why my prayer at the beginning of this was, Lord, send your spirit. Open our hearts. My prayer right now is actually that we would grasp what's actually on offer. That would actually grab a hold of us. Throughout John, when Jesus talks about life, John is the writer of the gospel, resorts to talking about creation itself. It's like John trying to grapple with it himself. The only way he can describe this is to say all of the world is being recreated. It's the only big enough concept to actually understand this life that Jesus has offered. That's why he begins the book in the beginning. He's retelling the story of creation because in creation, life is created. And it's like he's trying to get us to go. There's a new creation going on. It's so much bigger, so much grander. He retells the story of creation. And it's not just a do-over. It's not like Adam and Eve, you get to go try again. Let's wipe the slate clean, recreation. Try it again, guys. It's not that. Because in this instance, there's a new Adam. It's a recreation where the Adam is one that we can trust, one that doesn't fall, Jesus himself. And in this recreation, and I'm borrowing from the theology of Revelation here, but the two books are meant to be read together. In this recreation, there's a new Eve. The new Adam is put to sleep on the cross, his side broken open, and the water and the blood that flow out create a new bride who descends from heaven to him at the end of Revelation. There's a recreation where Adam and Eve are remade, Jesus Christ in the church, and in this new creation, this is John 1, we come in not as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but we come in as sons of the living God adopted, recreated in a new family. The recreation is restarting all of these things in this way that they were meant to be, bigger than they ever could have been, because Adam is more than Adam and Eve more than Eve, and we're a part of not just our own families, but the family of God. And therefore, the life of this new creation will make the life in this creation seem like a pale shadow, a whisper, in comparison to the new life, this one we will look back and go, it was like a vapor, like nothing. The new one is deeper and richer and grander. But even then, it's hard to get our minds around that, right? Because all that we experience is this life. It's almost easier to approach it from the negative. If we start talking about death, I think it might help us to understand what this life is. Because death is more than biological death. When we look at someone and say, you're dead to me, 
we realize that death involves broken hearts and broken relationships. When we say that dream is dead, we realize that death involves the extinguishing of hope and faith. When we say that that part of my heart is dead, it was killed by that person a long time ago, we realize that death involves things that are deep to our persons, our emotions, our psyches, that death involves something more than just the physical. Death is physical. But of course, what we realize in the way that we use the word is that it's relational, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's mental, it's spiritual. Death is like taking hope and joy and love and peace and security and cutting through all of them, distorting them, perverting them, breaking them, killing them. Much more than just biological death. My point in the comparison to the negative is that when Jesus offers life, the offer that's on the table is more than just simply biological life. It's relational healing. In every last place of our life, the relationships being put back the way they were supposed to be, given flourishing that they never could have had before. It's emotional healing. In every deep, dark recess of our heart, the evil being dragged out, being purified, and new creation coming in. It's mental healing. Our minds, as they break down, it's actually them being put back together, put back to what they never have been in this life. My point about the comparison to the negative, we understand the negative better because we understand what it means to be dead relationally or dead in a part of our heart or broken in one particular place or another. And so my question to y'all, again, this is this question, this challenge, do you understand the thing on offer? Is that life is the putting back together and the healing of all of those places. Flourishing in every dark recess of the heart. Growth in every place that we thought was dead. Shame washed away in every place where we thought we would never be free of. Life is these things put back together, healed, made new. This is why John resorts to the language of creation. Because we, if we look at our own life and the hurt that's there, are bound to say, I can't even imagine that. Maybe I, maybe I hope that that might be the case, but I can't imagine that. And John says, don't worry. It's being recreated. Starting from the beginning, new creation all over again. There's clarifications that we need from the Gospel of John. One of the really important clarifications is that this doesn't come on our terms. This comes on Jesus' terms. This We see this in John 4, we see it in John 6. It's throughout John where people come to him and say, I want this. This is what new creation looks like for me. And Jesus pushes back and he says, no, I set the terms for new creation. It may not be what you expect or hope for. It'll be better than you expect and hope for. But there may be things where you say, I want this to be the case in new creation. And Jesus very simply says, no, I set the terms. That's a clarification we need. We need the clarification that's throughout John that it's not by our striving. We can't earn this new life. Think about one of the central metaphors for new life, new birth. 
Is there a single person who can cause themselves to be bored? No. It's not by our efforts and striving. And most of us look at our lives and what they are is endless striving to produce life. And yet what's being said throughout the Gospel of John is this life is on offer and you can't earn it by your own efforts. It's important to get the clarification from John that this only comes by being absolutely united to Jesus. It doesn't come from any other source. Throughout the Gospel of John, he says things like, if you believe in me, you will have this life. Can't have it if you don't trust me. If you come to me, this is John 6, I will give you this life. You can't have it unless you come to him. John 15, if you abide in me, you will have this life. You can't have it unless you abide in him. If you eat my flesh, you will have this life. The one that makes us so uncomfortable in John 6. The words of coming and believing and eating and abiding. The, the point is clear that we can't have this except for in Jesus as we're united to him. All the effort in the world to find it in some other place will be fruitless in the end. It's important to add into those clarifications the ones that Jesus gives Martha. But this life is only fully realized in the resurrection. And we say, oh, I thought it was something here for me now. And he says, yes, but it's present too. It begins now. It's like an earth has been scorched and polluted. But suddenly the soil is healed and the plants begin to grow again. And we don't see the full garden that it will become. That's the resurrection. But the growth of these small plants point to the fact that life is coming back. And in this life, we see those shoots coming up, places we didn't expect it. And we wait for the flourishing of the full garden. What, we all, what we're offered is more than we expect. It's more than we could ever hope for. And I don't know what part of this y'all need to hear. It may be the part where you simply realize that you need to lay down your terms for what life will be. That you need to yield to Jesus' terms. It may be very simply the fact that you need to quit acting like you could do this on your own. Quit acting like you could earn this or create this by your striving. It may be the fact that you need to take seriously Jesus' call that this life only comes when you're united to him. You may have been holding him at arm's length saying, yes, but... And it may be that you need to bury yourself in him. Let him become your only hope. I don't know which part of this you need to hear. But I want to close with what Jesus feels and hears in this offer of life. Because this is astounding. What did he do when he came to the tomb? He wept. Why did he weep? It wasn't because he was insecure about what he was going to do. I mean, he said bluntly, you will see the glory of God. He knew what he was doing, so why did he weep? He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus. What's he even grieving for? He should be dancing. But he grieves. And it's not a grief that's, in fact, the, the, the more I wrestle with this, the more disturbed almost I am by the grief, because the grief is angry. You don't catch this in the English translation, but it says twice, John says twice, he was deeply moved. And the word there in Greek is he snorted in anger like a horse. He's mad in his grief. But it's an angry in his grief that's attached to a confidence in what he's about to do. You go, why is he angry in his grief? Because he's looking at people he loves and he's angry that they're hurting. 
He's grieved that they're hurting. And yet it's not a grief that's powerless because he says, yet watch me and I will raise the dead. I bring that up to close because when he looks at the scorched places of your heart, I think he looks with that same angry grief. That same, I wish that this one that I loved did not feel that. I wish that they did not suffer that. But it's not a powerless grief because he knows exactly what he's capable of and he knows what he will do. And so my call to y'all is don't hold him at arm's length. Come close. Abide in him. Believe in him. Amen.